another episode of Speaking the Lawn, the official podcast of Streaking the Lawn. Once again, my name is Pierce, and once again, I've got Zach and Ben here tonight to discuss the Who's. Zach, how are you? I'm good, Pierce. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And Ben, how are you? I had a lovely day. Just discovered oh. Zach is an SEC defender and Ugh. opponent of the ACC. Um, Ugh. But other than yeah. that, we're fine. Zach was sharing one of his many terrible opinions uh, about the college football playoff before we started recording a playoff that Virginia did not get nominated to participate in. So, yeah. so nothing for us to talk about on the football side, I guess. Although, actually, there is a lot of uh, transfer portal news coming out. So, um Stay tuned to that. We'll be back to talk about the uh, recruit signing in December. So not that far away from real football talk. But until then, I guess we'll have to talk about basketball. Uh, yeah, the who's. Let's see. The women, 6-2. and two, two wins after that LSU uh, narrow defeat. They beat Missouri in overtime and uh, beat soundly defeated LaSalle. The men, of course, uh, soundly defeated Texas A&M and soundly defeated the visiting Syracuse Orange for uh, their first ACC win of this young season. I don't know, guys. Pretty, pretty uplifting pair of games for the men, right? Definitely. I mean, especially after that Fort Myers week, I think everyone, especially knowing what we know, what we knew then about Wisconsin and West Virginia was sort of pretty uninspiring. Mm-hmm. Um but to come out of there and string together the two results that they did at home and then to see Wisconsin upset number three Marquette. West Virginia still looked pretty bad, but hey, they won, so it doesn't matter. We don't have to think about it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, all of a sudden, things are feeling up. Duke lost. The ACC doesn't really look like there's anyone that is 100% definitely better than this Virginia team. At least that's my take on it right now. We'll see what happens. But yeah. Uh, yeah, things are starting to look up. And I think that that's also just the nature of sort of the volatile nature of this roster of this team this season is that sort of like week to week, or at least early in the season, I don't know if you 100% know what you're going to get out of this team every game just because guys are still figuring things out. But it feels like over the last week, they finally did start to figure things out. Not finally, but but truly started to figure things out. Definitely seems to have addressed some of the things we were talking about last week with the... Uh the uninspiring win and loss to Wisconsin and, and where do we go from here? I think the thing that stuck out to me immediately was uh, Andrew Rohde's performance. Uh, we pinged him as someone that's got to step up. Uh, that's got to be a scoring option. He led the team in scoring against A&M. Seems like uh, the shooting confidence is there, but also the bit of the playmaking confidence, you know, to have the ball in his hands and drive and figure something out, whether it be scoring or pass him. Ben, do you see that, you know, the beginning of a maybe solidifying himself as a starter and whatnot? He pretty much is locked in as a starter, it seems to be, but now we see why. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if he didn't play his way out of being a starter when he looked bad, I don't think there's any reason to take him out of the starting lineup now that he's starting to look good. Um, It's been good to watch him sort of acclimate to the pace of play. I think there's definitely been some improvements in that regard. His game still remains not the most aesthetically pleasing uh, to watch. (laughs) He takes a few awkward mid-post shots uh, for my liking, but 
generally has been playing much, much better over these past two games. I was really encouraged against AM actually, just by how aggressively he played, which was funny because his final stat line didn't actually look that pretty, but I thought he looked more assertive getting his shot off uh, and obviously made two crazy threes late in the shot clock. Mm-hmm. One he banked in and one that he sort of hoisted with a guy in his face with a little bit of extra arc and made both of them. And against Syracuse, things were coming a little bit easier. But as you mentioned, it's not just the scoring, it's the passing. He had one really nice um, pass back in after a few ball rotations where he found Jake Groves with the seal in the post, which I was impressed by because when you have Naheem McLeod as the opposing center and Jake Groves, I think it's easy to just assume that you're not going to be able to find anything in the post. But good for him to keep his eyes up, look down low, find Groves when he actually did get a seal in the paint and pick out that pass. I think we've seen playmaking from him. That's really encouraging. And the shot making you have to assume will come, will stabilize. And at some point is going to even out around like 35% from three and he'll throw in enough from the mid range to um, keep you satisfied. Hopefully he can get (laughs) to the basket a little bit more. That's the last thing for him. I think I He's also, uh, we've mentioned this before, but he's been better defensively than I expected yeah. for a guy coming into the pack line from St. Thomas. Uh, typically those sorts of up transfers, like look at Jordan Minor. Uh, they have a hard time acclimating to Tony's system, but Rody feels like he's going to stick and the needle is definitely uh, pointed firmly upward. He's been improving. Excellent. So along those same lines, I think it's easy to say uh, Jake Groves has really solidified his role in the team, right, Zach? Yeah, I think where you see the most just market improvement is just being comfortable within the defense. He doesn't look quite as he's not, for the lack of better phrasing, he's not flailing around as much defensively as he was early on. You could say maybe some of that is not having to play quite as big of an opponent um, these last two games. But at the same time, he just he's a little bit more comfortable in the hard hedge, especially guarding ball screens. His recovery isn't fantastic, but that's why you have Ryan Dunn on the backside. and yeah, he looks playable. And I think that at least defensively, he looks like you can survive with him. And and I, and I say that because his his offense to defense split has been very dramatic. Uh, and so if you can just make it so that he's not actively hurting you on defense, the value he brings offensively, especially in sort of the offense that they're running right now is a guy who can hit threes, do a little bit of stuff off the dribble. He's a fairly good passer for someone his size to 12.2% assist rate so far this season. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's just been sort of a solid player. I think there was a moment there after the Florida game where we thought Blake Buchanan was going to sort of seize the starting role and, and be in that spot for the foreseeable future. But it, it just seems like Groves um, sort of fits what the team needs on offense and then isn't such a um, – he, he just hasn't been as bad as he was early defensively. Yeah, I mean, it, the knocking down shots that he brings has been just really eye-opening. Like, it, we're getting what we asked of this team, which was something that they really lacked last year, which was more than one person who you could trust to make a catch-and-shoot three, right? And obviously, Groves has done it. Rhodey's done it. We've seen Dunn hit some. I, you know, I feel like everyone was hitting him in the Syracuse game, right? So the whole team was raining threes, and that, of course... Uh, starts with the guy who was the one person to do it last year and Isaac McNeely. So Ben, I mean, we can't depend on what we saw 
Saturday for the rest of the season, right? <laughs> yeah, the, that game against Syracuse was just unbelievable. He was feeling it from the opening tip. I remember I was sitting there watching pregame warmups, watching him shoot, and he's usually a guy who makes a lot of threes, but he just he was not touching the net. And at halftime, it was the exact same thing. I don't think he touched the rim in those warm-up threes uh he was just absolutely on a heater and oh my goodness that was so much fun to watch it was the first time watching mcneely's gotten a lot of comparisons to kyle guy ty jerome those like that virginia backcourt but watching him shoot against syracuse some of those movement threes that step back that he hit in the second half the deep one that was the first time it really felt like watching a kyle guy 2.0 a guy who could just single-handed really really turn that game I mean it was a team contribution but they don't pull away that quickly they don't get that 30 point lead without McNeely just absolutely unconscious I think he had 16 points in the first half made four threes um finished at like what six of eight from three which is the most for Virginia in a long time since that Kihei Clark game where Kihei had six in the first half against Duke a few years back (laughs) but man that's a memory but I mean and and better a better results than Syracuse had uh, as a team. I think they started three for five and finished four for 18 or whatever it was. So a hot start mm-hmm. for Syracuse made it seem like it was going to be a competitive game. And we we're all sort of going, we're not too sure how good Syracuse is. I mean, LSU is probably terrible, but they blew out an LSU team and <laughs> goodness did they just make Syracuse look like, I guess how they made LSU look because uh, there wasn't anything the orange could do after the first couple media timeouts and, and the, the floodgates opened up right before the half. So um, some surprises, some non surprises. I mean, we could talk about it. It, it seems silly to gloss over Ryan Dunn and Reese Beekman, right. But you know, the stars, the, the potential all conference, all Americans on the team behaved like it um, in both of these games. Zach, would you, would you say? Yeah, I, I think, it's sort of insane. I don't think we've seen one individual perimeter defender in the Tony Bennett era be as dominant game to game, season to season as Reese Beekman has has been. Brogdon was probably more versatile yeah. of a defender. He could guard bigger players. He could do different things. But just the way that Reese, but 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 Malcolm, he couldn't stand up against quick point guards the way that Reese can. So go back and forth in that debate. But it you can't take for granted just how dominant he is in shutting down some of college basketball's best scorers. And he did that mm-hmm. um against Sudamint and, and Wade Taylor. I got his name right, right? Yeah. Um these two games. And it just kind of like it it puts opposing offenses in an immediate bind. Like just, yep, your best player is not going to be able to, or at least your best guard is not going to be able yeah. to score for you. Have fun dealing with that. And then done, I mean, Jesus Christ, like I, you can't put into words how good he is as a help defender, how good he is as an individual defender, the plays he makes, the way he makes team defense just ridiculously so much easier on the floor he is why they can play jake groves 30 minutes a game if they didn't have ryan done if they had jane garner there you could not play jake groves significant minutes on this team so like it it's just he he solves so many problems and and creates so many positive plays it's hard to quantify it was funny to hear uh john freeman uh, shout out voice of the cavaliers uh, after the uh, texas a&m game say um, something along the lines of Dunn 
shaking his head and and then saying openly to the student section what is this guy's deal or what is this guy's problem i think he was talking about henry coleman too which we all know the uva connections there but after just blocking the, the, the attempts in the lane over and over and over again it seemed like someone angered done i don't know if it was just the disrespect of trying to score in the lane on me which of course is just you know normal basketball or if something was said or done i don't know we I, we just got angry ryan dunn in the second half of that texas a name game i think he got pushed at one point when he was boxing out and then the ball was sort of rolling out of bounds and someone pushed him in the back there have been a couple like ryan dunn random stare downs defensively yeah. where just specifically <laughs> on the side where on virginia's bench side of the ball where he's just kind of like stalks a dude for like five seconds between the inbounds which is just i think him being incredibly petty and i love it uh (laughs) he like single-handedly closed that texas a&m game out with like three blocks and a steal yeah i think that was like four out of five possessions from like the five minute mark to the three minute mark defensive possessions i think that's where the talking to the fans yeah yeah happened Mm -hmm. because it just like they texas a&m could not score because ryan dunn was just in the way consistently and and if you don't score for from five or five thirty to three minutes whatever it was and you're down 12 you're not going to win the game so uh yeah he's just he's so freaking good and (laughs) as long as they can maintain a facade of him being able to hit three-point shots as long as he can hit like 30 percent as long as he can just do the bare minimum out there he will fulfill his need for this team on offense because he's so good around the rim. I think he's like 38th in the country in two-point field goal percentage. He finishes just about everything. And when he gets going downhill in just straight line, he's very difficult to stop. If he has to like put a move on somebody, eh, a little bit, who knows? He had one against Syracuse. Yeah, that transition nice was really nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's he's capable of it. But yeah, there's just he doesn't do things wrong on the basketball court. He's so smart, especially offensively. He doesn't make the wrong decision. He constantly creates offense as a cutter, especially. That's a really unique value and strength that he has. And also even just as a passer with ball movement, like he like I think at one point, like Reese kicked it out to him sort of. And he was sort of someone drove the baseline and, and threw it to him at the sort of around the free throw line. And then he kicked it back to IMAC, who wasn't in his light line of sight, but he just knew he would be there. And that generated a three for Virginia. So it just he, he makes so many of the right plays, even outside being this outside of being this athletic defensive freak. So before we get into more um, player specific things, but, you know, this all ties up to that nonetheless. I think when you look at these two wins and and where's Virginia need to uh, continue to improve. I mean, we knew going into the AM game that AM was arguably the best rebounding team so far in the country, and they sure dominated that stat against the Hoos. Um, but it's it's going to be a need even against non the best rebounding <laughs> teams in the country through the ACC, right? You see that physical type of play that the Virginia responded to, but they were able to respond, I think, successfully by both making their outside shots and defending the three really well. So I think the, the, the unifying 
defensive stat is how terribly AM and Syracuse both shot, I think 17% and 25% respectively from the three in those games. And that's not going to last uh, against teams that shoot the ball well, right? So I think that, that maybe we're making up for potential weaknesses um, in the paint, which isn't to you know nitpick or whatnot but just say like there's going to be some struggles (laughs) down the road against teams who don't match up particularly um like you know then again texas a&m that's a strength against a virginia weakness and virginia won the game right ben so i mean when you see making up for your weaknesses by playing to your advantages it should continue to flesh out pretty well through decent competition in this conference right yeah, I mean, the rebounding issue is no secret at this point. It's simply a product of the players they are going to be rolling out on the court. I mean, Ryan Dunn has the highest de- defensive rebound rate on the team. He's mm-hmm. very athletic, attacks the ball, great rebounder. Um, Buchanan has the athleticism to do it. But on the defensive end, we've seen him get beaten by guys with more experience and more savvy being able to beat him in terms of positioning because once the ball hits the rim he can jump with the best of them but he's getting beat before that happens Mm. which those are freshman mistakes those will get ironed out as his career goes on but not stuff virginia can particularly handle right now and then groves is just because of who he is as a player because virginia's scheme pulls him around away from the rim sometimes like he's just not going to be an impactful defensive rebounder i think you make a good point about the three-point shooting. Um, Virginia's playing good defense on the three-point line, but they're not they're not playing great defense. Uh, the, there's going to be some regression to the mean at some point. Right. I mean, teams are not going to keep shooting this poorly against the Cavaliers forever. I think they're at 27% on the season, which is 21st in the country. And Virginia, does, like this North Carolina Central team can't shoot. Um, <laughs> they play Memphis soon. Memphis can't really shoot. Like, But once you get into ACC play, like, if you're playing Miami, I mean, I know there's only one game, but that's a team where you have to stay yeah. locked in on the perimeter. And particularly against Syracuse in the second half, once things started to open up, I felt like there were multiple possessions where Syracuse would come down, get an open three, brick it, and then Virginia would go hit a semi-contested three. And while that's really fun to watch, and that's how you go on crazy runs, it isn't a very sustainable way to play. Um, <laughs> I do think I think the Texas a game is a good model for how they can win even with getting bullied inside. I think in that game, it felt like more of a trade-off where I was like, we're going to get beat on the glass. We're going to come down and try and rebound. But even then we're going to get beat no matter what, we're just going to do our best to limit that and beat them in the other facets of the game. And, and against AM, like you outshoot them from three, because that's the trade-off. If you have mm. a big man on the floor who can shoot threes, but isn't a great rebounder, you're going to win the three-point shooting category and lose the rebounding category more often than you're not. And I think relying on dudes like Reese Beekman and Ryan Dunn to steal you extra possessions. That's really been where the biggest trade-off has been. Virginia's forcing turnovers on 24% of opposing possessions, which is an insane number. That's going to come yeah. down. It's ninth in the country right now. But with Beekman and Dunn making plays, it's those turnovers, those steals, or those blocks on drives that never get a chance to get up to the basket. That's how you're going to flip games. It's not going to mm-hmm. be by killing teams on the glass. And I, I worry when we get into conference play again against the ACC juggernauts, like Armando Bacop might just go off for 30 and 25 and there's nothing Virginia can do about it, but you can't game plan for every game. Like it's going to be UNC and yeah. you Virginia has the players they have. You can't ask 
Blake Buchanan to immediately learn to be a veteran college basketball player. And I but think they're Zach making the most of what they've got. the best big man that Tony Bennett's ever had. <laughs> In his first year, none of the rest of them have played. It's not a high bar to clear. It's also Grove's first year as a Cavalier. It's, it's him and Mike Toby. So let's let them <laughs> battle that one out. Shout out Mike Toby. We could use a Mike Toby. We could use a Mike Toby. Hmm. Could use a Jack Salt, actually. They yeah, could use a Jack Salt. Well, Francisco Cafaro yeah, could have they, played they, a legitimate role on this team. There's a guy playing at Texas that could have uh, played a real yeah, but legitimate even, role but too. Like, so, but like the Caden drama aside, no, Ben's right though. They, we 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 got who we got right. So they're no, gonna I know. Throw... Just, it, the poppy thing is funny. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're gonna throw Buchanan. They're gonna throw Groves, uh, Groves plus Dunn, <laughs> as a yeah. as a combo in there. And you know, you can see obviously Coach Ben is trying to get minor uh, enough minutes to, you know, have live action in in a system that he's still not comfortable in. So, I don't know any growth you've seen um, from Jordan Minor uh, as he works his way, hopefully to. I say hopefully for him, but also hopefully for the team because of this dearth of front court players that we're going to, you know, need a little more depth from Zach. Uh, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I'm just pulling up Jordan Miner's stats real quick. Uh, so he played 10 combined minutes uh, in the Syracuse and Texas and A&M games. I mean, he had really three. No, I mean, he had three good minutes at the end of the half against AM, mm-hmm. I think it was, where it seemed like he provided a little bit of stability when AM had gone on a little bit of a run. Um, because I think AM went on like on a 10 0 run to sort of bring it back to just about even before the half. And then Miner mm-hmm. was in when UVA scored a couple buckets late. I mean, he just, yeah, like I think it, what you they wanted out of him, they got in that sort of that stretch of just providing physicality. He had two defensive rebounds in that stretch, had one personal foul, and didn't record any other stats. So, I, I, I don't think that there's been growth per se, and I'm not honestly sure. I think that there will be a general growth in comfort to the point where they can say. Okay, like for this one game against UNC, and this is just the nature of this roster a little bit, they're just not going to be very good against some teams that aren't that good, but are specifically good at one thing. That's Wisconsin. That's probably UNC. There's probably a couple of other ACC teams you could throw in there. If they can produce offense inside out and and go to guys in the middle of the floor in, in the paint to score, that's going to be a problem. We know this. This is not breaking news. If you can get Minor to a point where he can help stem the tide by playing 15 minutes in a game like that, then that's growth. I don't know if he's there yet. I don't know if he's gotten tangibly better um, so far this season, but I don't think it's impossible that he does get there. And those couple of minutes versus Texas A&M were at least a decent sign that he can this season. Yeah, I mean, Wisconsin, to me, in that game they just outplayed Virginia. You know, I don't think it, like, obviously their star there in the paint was a big reason for that, but it seemed like Virginia didn't know how to get anything going on offense. You know, it wasn't keeping that guy from, obviously he got every rebound and almost every scoring opportunity he wanted. I forget his name, their their forward. Um, But even when Virginia had the ball, they looked like they were getting out hustled and out, you know, defended 
better than they knew how to operate offensively, which happens. You know, some, sometimes you play poorly. Um, I, I think we just hope Wisconsin's that good and continues to be that good in the Big Ten, and um, you know, makes it a pretty understandable and and easy to to roll with loss. Um, Ben, when you look at the the offense that Virginia has employed since then, we talked a little bit last week about do we think they're going to change things around to play to some strengths, and there has been some some changing around of the offensive theory and um, or at least game plan. Um, clearly, it worked well, and and so what do you think we'll continue to see uh, through the rest of the year with the strategy there? Yeah, they've sort of pivoted away from relying on mover blocker primarily mm -hmm. and going with more inside triangle, uh, which generally means um, less of that like circular motion running off screens and more quote unquote traditional uh, basketball offense trying to work it into the mid post uh, going to create more opportunities for your guards to go and create off the dribble. Mm -hmm. I think the primary effect it's had for this team is just giving Reese Beekman more and more of an opportunity to take charge and really be the engine that drives everything offensively because he, this season, when he's on the court, uh, baskets that are not made by him, he's assisting on 46% of them, which is an outrageous number. Like that's almost half the team's points are coming either off Reese makes or Reese assists. And it's fourth in the country. It's a very, um, very dependent on him to sort of create advantages because he remains the only guy who's really beating people off the dribble. Uh, hopefully guys like Andrew Rohde can, can continue to score from the mid post, operate well. Uh, guys like Isaac McNeely can continue to take semi-contested threes and knock them down, hopefully. I mean, 60%, like he's been hovering around so far is probably unreasonable, but he's obviously a very good shooter. And I do think that it's okay to have Reese running the show primarily with um, with the ball in his hands a lot, but the other mm -hmm. players have also been stepping up and doing a good job, making the extra pass, rotating the ball, um, kicking it out, you know, just turning good looks into great looks. I do think the one issue it creates is when Reese is off the floor, they definitely yeah. look a little bit disjointed, but you've got to assume he's going to be playing quite a bit. And it's been encouraging to see how good inside triangles look the last two games. So it has looked great, right? And remember, I think it's a, it was just last season. I'm sorry if it was a couple seasons ago, but I, I feel like when they started to dabble more with this uh, triangle, um, it worked really well until it didn't. And so could you talk a little bit about whether it was a rut that they went through with this because teams you know, acclimated to it, but now teams obviously can scout it and know that Virginia's going to do it. Is there a difference in this year's team that's going to avoid that rut in this type of offense is what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think the big, like you're, what you're getting at is like the San Francisco game or like game, games like that uh, mm. with that 2021 team um, where they, they also went with that new five-out offensive style as well, but they would also use some inside triangle. It was good at getting Sam Hauser the ball, particularly in good right. spots for him to operate. But I think what can happen and when it starts to stagnate is there's a lot more flexibility and creativity available in inside triangle compared to uh, mover blocker. But that also means that guys have to be out there actually creating and making plays. And when I felt like it would get gummed up in the past, it was because you were relying on a lot of good jump shooters to create for you. 
but Virginia didn't have those guys who would break people down off the dribble, uh, create advantages and really get the de- defense moving in rotation. Uh, like you had scores like Hauser, uh, like Trey Murphy, um, who could get buckets against a set defense by just making shots over them. But I think what you would hope the difference is this time is you have Reese Beekman, who's a better playmaker than anyone on any of the previous Virginia teams that have run inside triangle. And he's the guy with the ball in his hands. So if he can get inside, he can break down the defense and create advantages for other dudes. I think that's ideally what keeps the offense flowing and prevents it from stagnating the way we've seen um, with Virginia teams in the past. I do think it's an interesting point that Virginia might just be catching teams by surprise a little bit. Uh, Last season, I remember they actually did the opposite. They were running a different offense. Uh, They're running the inside triangle to get it to Gardner a lot and then pivoted back to mover blocker against Clemson in the ACC tournament, I believe. And it looked really good. And then they lost to Duke and then they lost to Furman. Like teams catch up with that stuff. But (laughs) I think Reese Beekman is the reason you hope it'll be different this year. All right. Yeah, I, I just add to that, uh, agreeing with Ben and 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 supplementing that to say that in in twenty what in, in the Hauser year and then last season, I, an additional sort of issue that came up is in uh, among the five guys who they would play out there in that offense, teams could identify who couldn't shoot the ball and then simply play off of that person or those persons and proceed to gum up the offense. So last year it was when BVP went cold, things started to go badly because the entire offense was largely based around him pulling opponents' bigs out into the perimeter. In 2021, I think it was, yes, it was 2021, um, Beekman and Kihei, recent Kihei, not being able to hit catch-and-shoot jumpers, which they really couldn't do all that well that year, even if they did eventually, uh, was a problem or not even just catch and shoot just like shoot over someone who goes under a screen which they could both do by the end of their career and, and Reese can now but they couldn't then I think this year the question is and I, I mentioned it before of those five starters who are starting right now four of them are realistic reasonably 35 plus three point percent shooters three point yeah three point percent shooters um you know McNeely is above that roadies around there Beekman's in and out of there what is Dunn do because they've been playing Ryan Dunn a lot on the wing of that so they have two guys on the wing three guys on the mix as Isaac McNeely referred to it in his post-game presser on Saturday um so they've been doing a lot of stuff with with the three guards in there, which is really fun and is really dynamic and allows for them to really spread the floor. And, and it's sort of like set ball screens for Reese with guards against guards who don't really know how to guard a ball screen as the defender of the picker. Um, but do teams start to help off of Dunn dramatically? Does that mean that he has to play inside of the triangle? Uh, does Gross go cold as as Ben alluded to? can they find multiple guys to help create off the dribble? Can Reese continue to do what he's doing now for an entire season? I think those are sort of the question marks. I'd also just add that last year, I think we made a point at one point that Tony Bennett doesn't have a lot of offensive schematic buttons to press when things go wrong. He sort of pressed button number one already and has has a a little bit of some like diverse things off of that this year, more diverse than last year, because this personnel is a little bit more diverse offensively. 
but when do teams catch up? Because there probably are at some point and, and, and sort of how do they catch up and what does that look like? Is this success sustainable or are they going to have to go back to sides? Like w w what's the breakdown going to be? I think those are sort of the unknowns right now. Uh, one other somewhat unknown, at least coming into this week and now we're beginning to get uh, some looks and idea of what he brings to the team is uh, the surprise in Elijah Gertrude. Uh, coming off the bench, uh, not redshirting this year. Uh, pretty much a response um, to Harris's ankle injury, but uh, I think a surprise that people were excited about because we were already excited about him as a recruit um, coming off his own injury and not knowing if he was going to play or not this year. It seemed like all sort of opportunity plus his ability uh, presented itself in practice and and he was there and and excited to not redshirt this year so Zach looking at uh the first couple games for the freshman uh, what do we have to look forward to down the line but maybe more specifically what's he really going to bring to this team that you know we're hoping has a pretty decent ceiling uh, postseason and such yeah, sorry, there's a train going by outside my apartment, so hopefully no one can hear that too dramatically. But what I'll say is that uh, Gertrude brings elite athleticism as a 6'3 guard. I think as an on-ball defender, once he does fully have his legs under him and is comfortable, he's still sort of getting back to 100% full strength on, on his knee. Um, I think he's probably around like 98, 90, whatever you want to say right now. Um, he can spell Reese Speakman sort of in that role defensively in, in the way that he can pick up elite guards and defend them. Uh, he already looks comfortable in their defensive rotations. Part of that is just because he's so quick, so lengthy, uh, and, and has really good instincts. So it's it's like if once he really picks up the defense, watch out. I mean, we, we've already seen him block shots. Like he had two blocks and a steal against Syracuse. He's that type of plus defender that's going to be able to make plays while also being really positionally solid. So I think in a way, whereas Harris can get up under guys and is probably um, a defender for for more specific types of guards, I think Gertrude gives you defensive versatility and that he can guard someone a little bit bigger than him because he has the length, a little bit smaller than him because he has the quickness. Um, and so I think that that's a really beneficial add for this team to just sort of, oh yeah, now we have this defender as well. Mm -hmm. Offensively, it's going to be much more of a mixed bag but I, I do think on the defensive boards, he actually will be a good uh, rebounder as a guard because of his athleticism, the way he can go up and get the ball. We've already seen that a couple of times, even if his rebound numbers haven't been uh, anything special. I think offensively, ah, just keep the keep the offense moving for now, and then he'll be more of a scorer and a creator down the line in his career. So, Ben, where do you see, assuming Harris is able to come back, call it 100%, how's that rotation going to um, mix around is it matchup base or uh, the type of possession the who's need base i think it'll be matchup based or just like rotationally like maybe mm -hmm. one of them gets the first half one of them gets the second half uh what like now that you've burned Gertrude's red shirt there's no reason not to play him right i mean there's no benefit to the team if anything it's good to get him more experience but obviously we know that's not the way that the coaching staff thinks they're not planning long term they're trying to win the most basketball games this season and as much as i've loved what gertrude's brought on the defensive end i think it's really encouraging uh he definitely doesn't look totally comfortable handling the ball although the stop and start ability is encouraging he looks a little more um 
uncomfortable when it comes to getting in the flow of the offense, which is to be expected for a guy right. who wasn't expecting to play this season. And then, I mean, he's taken two threes and hasn't hit the rim once, which is a tough look. <laughs> but I like Harris is probably still the better player this season. And I bet that if Harris comes back fully healthy, he probably plays a book of the minutes. Um, that being said, I think if you see Dante Harris have a rough go of it in the first half, or even, I don't know, Isaac McNeely, Andrew Rohde, Rudy right. Speakman, any of those guys, if they just need a break at some point, maybe one of them uh, nicks an injury in the first half and you need someone to fill in. I think Gertrude is immediately the guy who steps in after that. And I think they'll try and do what they've been doing for Jordan Minor and Tane Murray with Gertrude, where even if they might not be parts of the rotation, if you're playing in March, they're guys who you're still going to get minutes to because they have a chance of needing to be major contributors. And it's better to keep those guys on the floor, keep them ready, keep them in the rotation, keep them familiar with what it's like to play basketball. Um, So I don't think it's going to be a major role, but I certainly don't think Harris's return means he's out of the rotation entirely. It'll be interesting to see um, how how that factors out, but also it's it's not going to take a long time for him to feel, you know, a little more comfortable, you think, right? Like, particularly on the offense. Um, I think defense, he brings it sort of already, although he may be a little wild, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little all over the place. But I, I see what you mean with, like, when he has the ball coming up and – just not comfortable in the flow of, of how, how, how that uh, drink gets stirred. <laughs> it's odd. Cause I think he's a really good ball handler. Yeah. Um, like I remember what, when we were, I was watching his high school stuff and doing the write up on him, the question was the spot up shooting, which I think we've seen that so far, but <laughs> like most of what he would do in high school was all stop and start stuff, getting to the basket. Mm. The, the stuff that stood out was explosiveness off the dribble and then defensive playmaking ability. I mean, the defensive playmaking we've absolutely seen. I mean, he has two steals, two blocks in 27 minutes as a point guard. I mean, that's pretty unheard of for a guy coming in to start his career. Um, but we haven't really seen the juice off the dribble yet. I de- like. I definitely feel like I can see the gears turning as yeah. he's trying to figure out how to play in the system and make the right pass. Uh, and it might benefit him to maybe get out a little bit more free-flowing, but I imagine that's all stuff that comes with time. There was one breakaway in the Syracuse game that was just uh, a classic, like, oh, we don't do that here type of, yep. of, 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 like, heaving the ball. Once he beat the guy, but then was off balance and didn't <laughs> expect the secondary defender, and so then just sort of chucked the ball up. And uh, he didn't get yanked right away. I was I was impressed with uh, Coach Bennett's resolve <laughs> there to continue to let him play. And, that one was and, hilarious because I think a very similar turnover happened on the next possession, and Ryan Dunn had the same opportunity to push a one-on-one break, and he just uh-huh. turned it around, dribbled yep. it out. The Tony Bennett, slow it down, run our 25 <laughs> seconds. That was a funny moment. I, I think I leaned over to my friend and said, yeah, he's probably getting yanked for that, but he didn't. So <laughs> No, he didn't. Yeah, but, Maybe that's progress. Then you look to the veteran player (laughs) (laughs) i love it all right so a little bit of a current acc trivia no cheating if if you have a tab up while we're recording this i i just want to know if you know who the only undefeated team in the acc is right now florida state not in football basketball too soon too soon Zach. That's, that's, <laughs> we might have we'll, FSU we'll see fans. if Clemson gets left out of Clemson actually is below Blue all Blood our all our beautiful. FSU fan listeners are like nah, don't bring them 
it is Clemson. I knew you guys both knew. Um, but the the Tigers, they're ranked. Virginia is not. Uh, but we've we've only got a handful of games. I mean, obviously we've got the the holidays and stuff to get to before they get back into ACC play. But looking around the ACC, do you think Clemson is up there with? I mean, Duke's lost a couple. How good are they? UNC has been up and down, mainly up. I would say Miami did look good at one point. Um, where what's going on? I mean, I, I think the ACC is largely kind of what it's been for the last couple of years it feels to me where like there's a handful of good teams probably unc virginia and miami are sort of solid fairly reliable teams that unc maybe not last year but uh duke is sort of the you have the talent are they going to put it together how soon will they put it together they're probably the best they have the highest ceiling in the conference but who knows if that's going to translate clemson just wins games they're kind of like i mean i thought they were going to have a down year just because of how lucky they got in close games last year and sort of not lucky but like they, they won so many close yeah, games really and then fizzled out as we called that they would um but <laughs> yeah i don't know brad brennell just coaches winning teams which is i guess good to see for the acc i don't really care but uh yeah i don't know i think virginia is, is really poised to do well in the acc especially with their schedule yeah, the schedule is is favorable. I mean, we we figured that. Um, looking, we we didn't need to see this month of games to know there was a favorable schedule. But uh, playing Louisville twice is looking pretty solid. Uh, and only getting Clemson once and UNC once and Duke once and Miami once, right? Miami, Miami once. once. Yeah, goodness, all the good teams once, but yeah. So, so arguably, NC State twice might be the biggest threat as far as teams that they play twice i don't know yeah georgia is georgia tech good they do play no. georgia tech twice. Georgia, georgia tech, is georgia tech beat duke so. that's what i'm saying like they're, they're clearly yeah. capable of some goodness they did look good enough the vibes are definitely good at georgia yeah. tech uh nice. they did i pointed out in my article earlier today they lost a bye game to uh umass Lowell, like two weeks ago yeah so, like they're not good but they have good vibes well new coach you know working through like losing yeah. a bye game and then building into something conference play could come together um before that of course the who's have nc central northeastern memphis and morgan state this is not a uh, morgan state of the morgan states that have been good in the recent decade this team is not good um memphis though definitely could be a, a strong challenge so um, you know i would expect worst case scenario though is the who's got three and one to finish out out of conference play and um, certainly they're very capable of beating uh, memphis as well too so that'll be interesting um but we've we'll be able to talk about memphis um later on that's on the 19th so it's a couple of weeks away there's only this nc central game we're going to publish this the day of the game and then the who's go on an 11 day uh, break for exams. Finals uh, break. Putting the athlete and student athlete, Pierce. Yeah. I mean, we're a real student athlete institution, unlike some others in this conference. Uh, some others across the entire landscape of sports, let's say, some of whom might be in this conference. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll fill that time, of course, with a football signing day talk which there's been recent news even outside of the transfers so 
Until then, uh, stay tuned to the blog as we break down, hopefully, the win over <laughs> NC Central uh, where the Who's shape up uh, as we approach ACC play. Uh, and, of course, uh, the women's team as well. So uh, until next week, for everybody streaking along, I'm Pierce. This is Speaking Along. Go Hoops. <laughs>